We are looking at Second uh, Samuel. So please turn there. You can find it uh, in the Pew Bible, that Black Pew Bible, on page 255. This is our third week now in the, um, the study of Samuel, which is one big book, but we've subdivided it. It is subdivided in uh, the text. So we're going to look at all of chapter 2. Last night, uh, we decided, I don't know if you have this problem in your home, but from time to time, we don't watch much television uh, but whenever I do, uh, me, I feel like I'm, I'm like way in the back uh, as far as technology is concerned because I can't seem to get this smart TV to find something. And then it takes forever. And then someone just gives up and says, just turn something on. And so last night, a, a person who will go unnamed decided it would be a good idea to just watch a, a Netflix documentary on the inside mind of cats. Now, ironically, the person who suggested this in our family is actually allergic to cats. But let me just say that in watching a good chunk of this documentary, literally called Inside the Mind of Cats, the scientist in the story, I don't know how else to put this in my honest, humble opinion, uh, he took himself a little too seriously, okay? And, and the details that they, I, the, the, the producers of this Netflix documentary, I just felt like they didn't leave enough space for us to just from time to time, you know, just laugh at some of the cute speculations and the wild-haired theories that made it quite comical. So, uh, maybe you just got that joke too. Um, anyway, it leads me to this question, and that is, why, why are we studying this book? Why are we studying this book of books? Why are you not at home watching a Netflix documentary? Why is this a good use of your time to come and open up what we refer to as God's Word? Well, in part, it's because we are persuaded, we're actually convinced, that this is not simply a lesson in history. Or this is not a documentary. This is not uh, a study of philosophy. Uh, all of those things are, are good endeavors, right? This is not primarily a book about morality, even. So I want you to just, I want us to be reminded that in many ways, big and small, God is using this book of books and, a, and a, a grand narrative to reveal himself to us that we might know more of his character and his covenant faithfulness. It's through the means of poetry and the prophets and uh, these stories. There, the Bible is rich with stories that God would reveal to us part of his wisdom, part of his love, part of his truth on how to navigate Life well, which we talked about this summer in studying Ecclesiastes. We need, we want wisdom. Granted, of course, there are times that we come across the stories in God's Word and they are very troubling or they're perplexing or they're, maybe it takes a little more when we come to God's Word. We, we need some perseverance, right? We need, we need some time uh, to consider, uh, some concentration to appreciate what God might be revealing. That's going to be the case today. So I'm, I'm, at, I'm, I'm going back to the proverbial put your thinking cap on. I'll admit here, even amongst the, the things that I find quite interesting, uh, bloodshed, betrayal, uh, various uh, battles and politics, and the fact that even with that in view, and the fact that we are millennia separated from the time that these events took place, that there is still value for us. In studying this, we get clarity on this when Paul writes, inspired of God in Romans 15. He says that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope. 
Why do we give attention and study to God's word? Well, I don't want to over-argue my case here because that sometimes makes it weak, right? But I would just venture to guess that something tells me that there is maybe even more than you appreciate the intelligence of cats, that you want to know God and that you and I both need and want to, do, to experience hope in this life. True? Now, if there was ever a person in the Old Testament who needed a refreshment in hope, uh, it was King David. Time and time again, uh, David, he goes from the obscurity of being this, you know, this, this poet, musician, shepherd, into, he gets thrust into this role as this prominent commander of the Lord's army. And he's also pulled aside in private, and he is anointed to be the next king over God's people, the nation of Israel. He's very successful. He lives a, a life uh, that is, is, I mean, he is successful as a warrior. It doesn't sound all that bad, except that all along the way, he is met with opposition from without and from within. And when I say from within, I'm talking about his own people of Israel, but also from within him own, his own self. He struggles, of course. At times he handles and navigates life really well and, and by faith and with wisdom. But other times he is, he is you know, he's, he's impatient or he's foolish or he's operating out of unbelief. But the times that we encounter David in these stories in First and Second Samuel, where he is most in step and is demonstrating the greatest degree of wisdom, is when he is a man of prayer. That's what we find here in the text uh, this day. We have confidence that he's in a healthy place. Now, we're going to do things a little differently this morning. Normally, I have you guys stand as we read the whole of the text um, in deference to that. But I, I, this morning, I'm actually going to kind of work our way through reading portions and then trying to add some commentary so that hopefully I can, I can keep you in and, uh, and help our understanding as we work our way through. So I'll start with prayer and then we'll read. Would you join me? Father, uh, we are grateful for the gift that you've given us in stories, and they do testify, uh, and we pray that they would persuade us this morning more deeply that you are both good and gracious, and that we, we frankly are a, a people of foolishness and helplessness if, you had not, if we try to rely upon ourselves and you had not revealed yourself as someone worthy to be trusted. So I pray that right now, by your spirit, we might see and walk in the good news of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Two things that you're going to hear as we read through this are, I think, themes. This isn't even my outline. These are not my two points. But here are two things that I think you'll observe that are two themes that are in tension and in contrast. As we read it, you'll hear it. All right. One of those is simply a kingdom or a realm where there is a divine appointment. And then there's another realm that's in competition, and that is a kingdom of human ambition. Both of those things are operating here. Listen for them as we work our way through. This is God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there. And he and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up with his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. Now, I'll pause there. Okay, put your finger. You're going to need your Bible open. You're going to want your finger in God's word, the text. 
We'll pause there. And I know if you've got any noise about the fact that David had two wives, that noise and the volume of that is only going to go up as we make our way deeper into 2 Samuel. So I promise, not today, but I will address how polygamy was and is a bad idea. Uh, but just, 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 just hold on, okay? That noise is going to get louder and we'll need it to, uh, in future weeks. I do appreciate, I think we can appreciate that David does act here uh, with a careful reliance upon God. That's why it opens the way that it did here in chapter 2. The narrator tells us. And David had to endure a great deal at this season of grief. And then he knows that he's supposed to, in God's ultimate plan, although he can't see it, ascend to the throne. He is supposed to be king. He knows that that's God's will, God's plan, and God's process And God's timeline is not clear. We don't know how, but he does hear from God. Maybe it's through another prophet or priest, uh, or maybe because he himself is a prophet. He gets a direct word uh, from God of revelation here that he should indeed go up into the city of Hebron. And and by the way, in verse 3, all of the families are going with him. So they're permanently leaving where they were in exile, David with his men and, his, uh, and, those, and those families that were loyal to him, they're going to cross over and, uh, and they're going to they're come in. They're going to cross over that natural border of the Jordan into the, the, back into the promised land, their land, into the tribe of Judah, uh, which, is David's, uh, which is David's people. And so this, this town of Hebron there is the capital, so to speak, of Judah. It's just about 20 miles uh, south of Jerusalem. It's a sacred place. Many of the forerunners of the faith, Abraham and Sarah, there's, uh, there is Isaac and Rebekah. They're buried there in the city of Hebron. And then we pick up again here. Follow with me in verse four. The men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So Technically, this is the second time that David has been anointed. Remember when he was a young shepherd boy. But now this begins another stage in a very long process of David ascending to the throne over all of the people of God, Israel. But here, because ever since the days of the judges, Israel, the people of God, the nation has been subdivided. Since the day of of the judges, the various tribes and their towns have kind of begun to operate more and more independently. And so when, you, when, you, when we talk about God's people, this is a reality that's spread up, up, about even more so than you would say the United Kingdom, right? So, I mean, under, under, the, under Great Britain, uh, we're talking more, this is, Israel at this stage is really more like the EU. And, uh, and these, these are, are re- relatively independent um, groups. And so David is from Judah. They're going to recognize him uh, as king. Many people knew this. Many people embraced this and and wanted this. That was his people. But that's it. That's all. That's the only tribe out of all 12. And the rest of them are are further north in the land. uh, Are not loyal to David at this stage yet. Judah's in the south. There are others in the north. David gradually will become the rightful uh, king over all of that. But right now it's still a house divided. Those loyal to King Saul and his family... Um, even though Saul is now dead, the first king of Israel, he is dead. He's been grieved and mourned, and now, and, and along with his sons in battle. And now there's David and those who uh, have been for quite some time uh, loyal and aligned with him. David is a man of prayer. He's patient. Verse 1, it says that 
you know, that he inquired of the Lord. And then it goes on to say that he was actually strategic, though, in relationship to those that he anticipated wouldn't be with him because we pick up in the the latter part of verse four. All right. Hopefully you've had your finger there. Keep following. Verse four, the second half. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So Jabesh Gilead, by the way, is a town uh, that has allegiance to Saul. And in fact, David is, is actually, is, is truly, genuinely recognizing the fact that they as a people in Jabesh, the city, had honored Saul. And one of the ways that we know that, um, because David himself was grieving Saul's death and his sons, but we know if we go back and read in 1 Samuel 31, that, that when, when they took, when they killed Saul and Jonathan, his son, they took their bodies and they pinned them up on the wall uh, of the city to, you know, to mock and to scorn and to triumph and, and brag about their victory. And so the people of Jabesh, at, you know, at, you know, at expense to them and threat to them, went and, at, by night and took those bodies down and disposed of them and buried them uh, properly because they didn't want any further disgrace to come on uh, God's people. So, so David is recognizing that. He's saying, that was, that was wise and well of you. And he, he doesn't threaten them. He promises them. He's trying to be strategic to a group that he knows are loyal to Saul. And he, he floats it out there. He says, you know, Judah is loyal to me, and I promise to do good by you. He's anticipating, hopefully, there will be a day when they will uh, surrender and also Uh, acknowledge his kingship, but he's not pressing the issue. He's not threatening to them at all. David will be the rightful king, uniting all the tribes of Israel, but not yet. In fact, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of patience because the next part, and this is a significant, but here in the text, verse eight, but Abner is this, but represents like seven years of, of, you know, difficulty. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army took Ishbahesh, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manahim, and he said to him, King over he set set him king over Gilead and the Asterites and the Jezreel and the Ephraim and Benjamin and all of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's own son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Months. So here enters this figure, Abner. Abner is not new to the story. We know of Abner because he was mentioned earlier in 1 Samuel. In fact, he was a relative of King Saul. He was uh, a commander, a general in the army of Saul. He's the one who actually way back in 1 Samuel 17, when David is that young man, identifies him during that, that, that epic battle with, uh, with Goliath. And he brings him to Saul because Saul's inquiring of his right-hand man, Abner. Go find who is this young man. Uh, and, of course, David is triumphant and David rises up. But along the way, when Saul comes after David in his envy and jealousy, there's that time when, and when Abner, who's supposed to be the king's right-hand man, that we read later in 1 Samuel 26, that David has one of many opportunities to go and take out Saul, his opponent. 
the, the king that's in the way of his, of his succeeding into the throne. But he doesn't because he's waiting on the Lord. David doesn't take his life again. But there's this episode in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel where, where, where Saul is asleep and David's able to take his, his spear. And he goes and he, he points out to Abner, hey, Abner, guess what? Shame on you. You, you of all people, you, you were supposed to be the night watch. And guess who could have taken out Saul's life again? If it, if it were up to me and I was your boss, you'd be fired. Worse, you'd be dead. So Abner knows David. Abner knows that David is the one who is restrained and is trusting in God and chosen by God, not Saul. But he can't handle that. He wants, he knows David he knows that David is, has the character and the promise on him, but Abner is not ready to leave power. This is where we are seeing uh, the two kingdoms, right, in conflict, the two realms. Because David is seeking the Lord, and David is God's anointed choice. But then there's Abner, who is capable, who is persuasive, who is influential as a leader. He's very bold and ambitious, but he rebels against God's will. Not ready to give up power, power. Now that King Saul is dead, he loses power, except that he, he decides naturally the best choice would go and to be able to find David's son. David, you know, excuse me, not David, Saul's son. Saul was, was killed in battle. Jonathan and the other sons were killed, but there was this lone son who had not gone off to battle, and his name is, is Ishbaheth. Not an easy name to pronounce and really not something you would want to name your children because literally in Hebrew it means man of shame. You wouldn't even want to name your cat this, okay? It is bad. So Ishbosheth, he was not there presumably. At, he wasn't in battle. He wasn't with his father and his brothers in battle. And now Abner's going to go and take him and say, you're now king. Why? Because he wanted a figurehead. Abner's really going to be the guy who's going to call all the shots. So he wants to take, and it's going to take him a long time, by the way. It's going to take him all of like five years to get the tribes of, of the northern part of the country united up underneath Ishbaheth and, uh, and really him. And so it takes all of this time. That's how we kind of make sense of the fact that maybe you caught this, that in the text there's kind of a, a, a discrepancy here, the two dates between verses 10 and verse 11. Okay, so really what, what, what's going on here is David immediately is anointed as the king of Judah and he reigns for seven years. Well, but the first five of those, he's not, he's not competing against Ishbaheth in the northern part because it took that long. So it's only two and a half years that he has been reigning uh, over the northern tribes, the rest of the, the tribes of Israel. So now we pick back up uh, in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbaheth, the son of Saul, went out from uh, Mananhinam of Gideon, of Gibeon, excuse me, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, he's the commander of David's army. Well, it says, fine, let's arise. Verse 15, they arose. They passed over by number, 12 from Benjamin of Ishbaheth and the son of Saul and the 12 from the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head, thrust his sword in his opponent's side, and they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called 
Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So Abner here is proposed to David's commander, Joab. Listen, this is what he's saying in verse 14. The word there is compete. I think what he intended was to be, instead of us all going to battle, let's just take our top guys, right? Winner takes all, all right? This is going to be kind of a, a, gladi- you know, a gladiator tournament, and we'll take your best 12 and our 12, and then we'll see who God favors, and we'll see who wins the day, and that we'll just go with that. So it was, it was meant to be of sport. Maybe even these wouldn't have been killed, but sadly enough, you, you see the imagery unfold. All 24 die. In the course of that battle, it gets so bloody, they all die. And so now no one wins. And then there's, the, you know, it's just a bloodbath. It's a tragedy. Now, sadly, they all end up dying, verse 24. So there's not a winner. Um, and then when we go on to read, we get the clear impression that these people actually know each other. They're, they're calling out by name. And that's because they do. They, they, these people, in some cases, are related. They're, they're part of the, the broader history in the, the nation of Israel. This is a civil war. That's not, this is no longer the, 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 you know, the battle against the Philistines or the Amalekites. This, this is their own people that are now in a civil war. Pick back up with me in verse 18. And the three sons of Zeriah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Ashael. And now Ashael was as swift as foot as a wild gazelle. And Ashael pursued Abner as he went, and he, he turned neither to the right or to the left from following Abner. So his face is set. Verse 20, Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Ashael? And he said, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. In other words, take one of these guys who's already dead. Don't keep pursuing me. But Ashael would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Ashael, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? So in other words, Ashael had been warned. This is, this is by the way, this is not compassion on Abner's part. He's not motivated out of compassion for this man. He's motivated out of fear. Because he knows if he were to take out Ashael, he would be facing the rat, which would have been easy for him. He knew, he knew that he could master this, but he would be facing Joab. And he did not want to be threatened by that. So he asked him to turn him aside. Doesn't. And then he takes and he kills him. And he faces because he doesn't want to, you know, face the wrath. Well, let's read it. Verse 23. He refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell there and died where he was. Well, of course he did. But anyway, the back of this, by the way, the back of spears sometimes did have a, a sharpened point because it was used to thrust a, a sword at times into the ground. So it's not inconceivable that this would happen. And then in verse 23, we'll, we'll read this to the end. And all who came to the place where Ashael had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way on the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword forever devour? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? 
How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men all went back that night through Arabah and they crossed the Jordan and marching the whole morning they came to Manahiam. And Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were, they were missing from David's servant, 19 men besides Ashael. But the servants of David had struck down Benjamin, 360 of Abner's men, and they took up Ashael and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So in other words, it's a, it's a blowout, right? There's 320 verse. 360, excuse me, versus 20. David's men were significantly more victorious. Of course, we're going to find out more of what happens. Abner has got his angles and his creative ways of trying to control things. But I want us to pause here uh, and say, okay, their world, our world. God is still committed to a plan where David's house will reign. All the way to this very day, because there is even even in David's vision, someday his eternal kingdom would bring forth one of his sons of his line, a greater son, a great grandson of of David, who would be the king, who would be for us Christ, not Saul, but David's line, an eternal kingdom. And we're still called as God's people to live in repentance and faith and in allegiance to a king and a kingdom that, well, unfortunately, we can't see just yet. It's not fully realized. Christ's kingdom is not fully realized. And we live in this kind of already not yet space. And I think that this account would teach us a couple of things. So I want to kind of move again, their world, our world, in closing just to a couple of things by way of application. All right. So here, here they are. I think it would teach us two valuable things. One is about prayer and another is about waiting. Because we see here that there is a prayer on behalf of King David for discernment. It's no small thing that the narrator included the fact that he inquired of the Lord. And of course, we don't have the same ability to hear God's, nor should we look for it, God's word, uh, God's voice to speak audibly uh, to us. That doesn't make us worse off. In fact, we're better off because Hebrews 1 tells us that in the former days he spoke to us. To his people through the prophets, but in these latter days he's spoken to us through his son. So we have the son of God, the word of God in, in flesh living. We have record of that and we have God's word and we have God's spirit. So we, we live in this space and we know we're not looking for some kind of new revelation. God has said so much. Contrasted with David's approach, which is by faith and waiting on the Lord and inquiring of him, Abner saying, no inquiry necessary. I know exactly what I'm going to do. And he is very ambitious. I will take control. And he doesn't even pause to even consider or entertain the question. God, here's my plan. Do you agree? No, this is where we're going. And Abner is pressing forward. He knows the truth, but he won't embrace David. So God has given us the life and the wisdom of Jesus. He's given us his, his word, which is even a fuller picture than David could even anticipate. That David could see. It's, it's fuller. And then God has also given us his word. God speaks to us through his word. We speak to God through prayer. And so beautifully, 
at times, those work together because of God's Spirit. And us relying and crying out to the Spirit of God. Spirit of God, give me counsel. Give me the comfort. Give me the conviction that I need to see and discern what it is. John Calvin, in his sermons on 2 Samuel, says, Even though David clearly knew that God had constituted him as king and Saul had trespassed, even though the time was ripe for David to enjoy the crown, nevertheless, David asked God to tell him what he should do. Why? Why even, why even consult God? I know what's best. No, David, Calvin goes on to write, because although he was on the way, he still knew. David could, knew that he could seriously err and if God, had, if God wasn't going to guide him. So let us learn, Calvin says, through all of life to go to the Lord, especially when we're facing an important decision. Let us find out what is to be done and let us not be so self-assured that we fail to pray to God to show us what is useful and expedient. Does God's word echo that anywhere? I think it does. And very clearly in James 1, because James writes, listen, consider it joy when you face all kinds of trials. Usually it's in the trials that you find yourself in an important decision. Do I bail? Do I, do I pull out the nuclear option? <laughs> you know, do I, you know, do, do I, do I write that, you know, do I write that email? Do I put that money down? Do I count it all joy, brothers, when you meet various trials? Because he says it's the testing of our faith. But then he doesn't just say go on your own. He reminds us, inspired of God, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be lacking in nothing. And if anyone lacks wisdom, James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. So here's, here would be your homework. If you want to discern a little more, Press in on James chapter 1 and see what it looks like to pray for wisdom with patience. We cry out, Lord, help us to seek your will through biblical wisdom. And then, and then to do that means we even invite people in who know God's word. I do it all the time. That, there's people that I've got on speed dial that take me quickly to God's word, not to what Troy wants to hear. Which sometimes takes time. It means I've got to slow down. You know, maybe, Crystal will say, maybe you should wait until the morning to write that email. That's wisdom. In fact, sometimes God says, I don't want you to wait till the morning. I want you to wait for months. I'm going to ask you to trust me as you wait for years. Which leads to my next point of application. That is, I think we learned something valuable about Waiting with patience. David had to wait for years. And in that process, he didn't exalt himself. He didn't take measures into his own hands. He waited on God. He would have been very tempted to do that. He's even teed up to make it as easy as possible to take out Saul's life. And he doesn't do it. Now Saul's dead. And he is still waiting, discerning God's will for how he is to take over and reign God's people. It's going to be years. He's only the king right now of Judah. You can imagine that there were people around him that said, David, come on. Come on. This is our opportunity. And David, of course, is not perfect. And we'll be reminded of that in future weeks in our study. But he is here patient 
in his inquiry of the Lord and his will. I sometimes wonder, maybe you do too, that technology is not that great of a thing. I mean, it is because technology is something of, uh, you know, has a redemptive purpose sometimes. And, and so does things like medicine. But I, I have wondered at times, what is the impact on our worldview and, and our attitude and our posture and our, 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 our living when you have so much by way of technology and Tylenol? Let, let me explain what I mean. There was a, a, this summer we were at a, a family member's home. I'm sleeping on the couch. Not exactly a great mattress that uh, sometimes I wake up feeling a little bit off. And it was, it was the middle of the night and I woke up and I don't know what it is, but there was this intense pain in my shoulder from how I guess I'd been sleeping on a nerve. And I thought to myself, this is horrible. And, and I thought, I, it, I know it can't be an injury or something serious, but I'm just sitting here and I'm in a lot of pain and discomfort. And I thought to myself, what if that pain was, was chronic? I mean, I know I can jump out of bed and go grab for, you know, an, an Advil. But right now, what if I didn't have Advil? What if this was chronic? I would be crying out to God for mercy. Oh, wait, I can cry out to God for mercy right here and now. Sometimes I wonder if technology has an impact on us. In some ways, I wonder if it sharpens and shapes our impatience. Because you know what it's like with, with all that's come about by way of advancement in technology that we have instant access. We want instant information. We want instant access to people, to information, to solutions. I want to be able to download this immediately. And so that, the fact that we live in a, in a society that has things like Tylenol and a microwave, does it not impact sometimes the way that we pray? Lord, I want you to fix it. Oh, by the way, could we do it now? We live in a society where we could, we think that we, we should have instant gratification, instant and constant news, instant entertainment. As we're about to pray together here at the close, we're prompted by our Lord Jesus. We're told that we should pray. Father, your kingdom come and your will be done. And, and, and of course, underneath that is that, that your will be done in your way, in your time frame. Father, you know all things and you do all things well and good. I trust you. I believe in you, but help my unbelief. Just another word here briefly about how David's kingdom and God's appointment is still coming into focus. I'm sure that it would have been very discouraging. All those who are loyal to David, when are we going to see the kingdom and the king in his rightful place? It's clear that the text, David was prayerful and patient seeking the Lord. David knew how to hear. David didn't only care about the goal. He also cared about the way to get there, the ends and the means He was concerned about that. David didn't want just people to fear him. He wanted people to fear the living God as he was doing here. This past week, a friend of mine sent me an article of something that he was a little bit disturbed about. Evidently, there is this guy 
Um, his name is Pastor Sheets, uh, who is a leader of some new apostolic religion. Uh, he dreams of an America that is a, a Christian theocracy. And he, he says, we, the church, are God's governing body on earth. We have been given legal power and authority from heaven. We are delegated by him to destroy every attempted advance of the enemy. This supposed pastor Sheets goes on to say, for America to be the nation God intended, he insists, it, we must end religious intolerance. Now, I, I, I wanted to assure this friend of mine that I, I don't believe that. And, and yes, I'm a pastor, but I believe that that is nonsense. It's heresy. M- meanwhile, we live in a, in a democracy. We live in a republic that is set up with a constitution. It's been largely influenced by Presbyterians, I might want to add, as we govern ourselves. But we live in a nation that protects freedom for all, all practices and forms of nonviolent religion. I told him that it's not the job of any government anywhere in the world at present to end religious intolerance. Excuse me, religious tolerance. However, there is a day, I reminded him, that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will be bringing that about by sword. It's very clear. Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And meanwhile, I reminded him that Jesus doesn't need my help with power or politics to get that done, except through love and humility and service and gospel witness is what we do as the people of God in humility. So whether it's anxiety about some big decision or the frustration of waiting, we should be humble and even we, as we think about, gee, you know, we're like this remnant, right? We're the, we're the, we're the church. And it seems like we're, we're, in the, we're in the low realm. Don't worry. It's okay. It's part of God's design. And we're told that we should cast all of our anxieties on him. And First Peter says that we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That at his proper time, he may exalt us. I'm not discouraged. I, I mean, we're not Judah and we don't serve King David. We are the church and we serve the King of Kings. And sometimes it feels like we are small in the world. That we're just a remnant. But God honors the faith as small as a mustard seed, which he intends to bring about and birth with that tiny seed. A great, beautiful sight a multitude of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation bowing down in worship of King Jesus in all of his glory. And we're not there yet. Someday, what a glorious thought. When we, even now, it would be wise for us to, in all of these ways, humble ourselves before in repentance and worship the King. Would you pray with me? Father, that we might prize and cherish Christ more and more. Would you help us? Would you help us to remember that he is our governor, our master, our king, and that our real citizenship is in heaven. The new heavens and the new earth, Lord, we pray you would return soon and 
make all things right and all things new, that you would reverse the curse. But as we wait, Lord, I pray that we would be a people of of the fruit of your spirit, patient and long-suffering, that we would be a people who cry out to you for mercy and that you would tear away the lies of the enemy who loves to cause us to doubt, who would love for us to try to assert ourselves in human ambition. Lord, would you give us wisdom on where we are supposed to act and where we are supposed to wait, when we are supposed to speak to others and when we are supposed to speak to you in prayer. And we need help to discern that. And you told us you're generous, so please bring it. And Lord, I pray today that you would help us in our witness in the community to be so characterized by love and grace and humility. I pray also for churches in our area. I want to remember this morning the Lutheran Church of the Cross here and also Faith Community in Plymouth that you would keep those congregations and their leadership unified, Lord, and encouraged on their mission. Lord, I pray that you bring about repentance and renewal and revival in our own community as we trust you. Would you teach us more about waiting and seeking you and inquiring? Even now, as we pray together, as you have taught your disciples to pray, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, 